Welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. I'm here with Brianna and Lisa, and we are going to get started today with a few important conversations we will be having throughout October. Yeah, so for anyone who's unaware, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So, you know, we started this podcast, we wanted this to be a place where we can discuss the issues that we deal with at work, but really take these conversations into the community. Um, We wanted this work and these conversations to be happening And in a way that's really bringing awareness to these issues in a way that we can really impact and create change in our own communities. And so we're gonna be um, highlighting a lot of important things throughout this month. We are going to be bringing a lot of insight in really how we understand, define domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And also we're gonna be sharing out a lot of different ways that we as community members can have these conversations, can provide support to others, and also share out some resources that we have available as well. And so I know that we currently have a really cool event coming up. I don't know by the time this podcast airs if this event will be over or not, but JC, do you wanna share a little bit about our event coming up? Absolutely. Yeah. So our event that's coming up this Tuesday, October 20th is Light the Night Purple. So you may ask why the color purple? Well, purple is the awareness color of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which we're in in October. And we really wanted to just create an event where community members can really get involved, get informed and kind of create that awareness around domestic violence. So um, join us for a night a fun night of awareness and games and some trivia. So we hope to see you all there. We're gonna have a pretty great game of Jeopardy. I'm gonna plug that right now. And I'm a Jeopardy nerd. I watch Jeopardy all the time. So I'll say that's gonna be super fun. Something else to highlight too, is that we're gonna actually have a domestic violence survivor that's gonna come and speak as well. Is that correct, JC? Absolutely. So she's going to share her story, which is very impactful. Um, And we're really just excited. Hopefully this will, you know, really let our community know that domestic violence does happen and it does happen in our community as well. Yeah. With it being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, that's something that we definitely want to do is raise awareness, not only about domestic violence itself, but what really goes into that, how we define it. Uh, what really is domestic violence? You know, some people might have a general idea of it, but when it comes down to actually defining it, what does that look like? So there's actually been some models that have been developed that we use frequently. So we will get into the history of those as well as actually going through those models today. Uh, But before that, we're gonna talk about the cycle of violence. Absolutely. So there are different stages of the cycle of violence and the first stage is the honeymoon stage and in that honeymoon stage is when everything may seem perfect in a relationship right where you know maybe flowers um, and you know nice dinners are happening um, where everything seems great that person may seem like they're your soulmate Um, you're not really having many issues in that stage so everything may seem perfect and I always refer to it as like the fairy tale stage right Um, but that's the very first stage, the bees are maybe overly flattering and that's something that is normal in the cycle of abuse. I always like to think of this stage, whenever I hear of this, I really commonly think about those overly romantic like rom-com movies, right? And it's not to say that those relationships are always abusive or abusive at all, no, but just thinking about that idea, right? Usually we watch those movies and there's that really quick involvement. There's that overly perfect, you know, there's there's these grandiose gestures to the other person. It's almost that phase where it really seems like too good to be true, Mm -hmm. right? And something just to kind of take a a step back on before we go into the next stage um, is first and foremost, it's really important to understand that all of these abusive relationships are gonna take this cycle. They're going to have this pattern. And I don't know if this happened for either of you doing this work. I remember coming into this field about four or five years ago and hearing that every violent relationship is gonna go through the cycle. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a very questioning kind of person. So in my mind, I was like, maybe a lot of them, but how is every one of these relationships going to take these exact same patterns? I'll tell you what, four plus years later, they do. It's just, it's just the nature of how this works. And so I think just understanding that the cycle exists and then understanding, um, 
you know, the stages and what this really looks like is a huge first step to kind of catching domestic violence early or having a deeper understanding of it. And so when we move out of that honeymoon phase, and another big thing is every relationship's going to have a honeymoon phase, even good relationships. There's going to be that period of time where, you know, maybe I'm freaking out on the inside, but I don't want my partner to see that yet, you know, so I'm going to be maybe more calm, cool, and collected than I normally would be, right? Or have a different reaction, or maybe I'm changing my language, my behavior, because really we're just putting our best self forward or we're trying to, right? And so regardless, if we're in one of these abusive relationships, um, this honeymoon phase, however however long that's gonna last, maybe it'll be days, maybe it'll be weeks, months, right? But once we're out of that phase where everything is rainbows, sunshines, chocolates on a pillow, love notes written on my mirror and flowers, we start to transition out of that phase because something begins to happen. And we go into what's called the tension phase. And every time I teach the tension phase to high schoolers, especially because that's my wheelhouse, usually where I'm educating, I always ask my high schoolers, have you ever been told when you did something wrong, like just wait until your father, here's what you did, or just wait till your mother, here's what you did, right? And you have that moment of panic of like, oh my gosh, like I know something bad is coming once they figured out what I did, but you're just sitting with that feeling, right? You, you know something bad is, is coming to you, some form of punishment. This phase feels a lot like that. So it goes from this overly romantic, really lovey situation, and suddenly we've experienced a red flag, and that's why we're sitting in this tension. So maybe they reacted to you differently than what you've seen before. Maybe you know, you're know you used to them kind of being calm, cool, and collected, and maybe now there's a traffic jam and suddenly they flip out and are using really aggressive language or, or getting angry with you. And it gives you that moment of like, oh, I didn't know that side of you existed. Suddenly it's like something feels a little bit wrong, right? Or like that feeling like I'm kind of waiting for something bad to happen now. And the unfortunate thing is about that stage, your internal alarm, it's it's generally not wrong. And so you kind of understand that there's something bigger that's approaching. And Brianna, maybe you can kind of discuss that next step. Yeah, so that something bigger is what we normally think of as domestic violence. Right. We don't normally think about this whole cycle. It's that explosion part, which is the next stage in the cycle uh, that we commonly think of because it could involve the something physical. It could involve that emotional abuse, whatever it is. It's passing that tension that Lisa talked about of like, hey, that feels weird or this isn't right or that hasn't happened before into this is something that's abusive. And like Lisa said, every time after that something abusive you enter right back into that honeymoon phase there's that circle back into the cycle it just goes around anytime you see it displayed it's got arrows that take it around in a circle because that's part of why you know people ask why don't they just leave because it's not all violence all the time Mm -hmm. they circle back into that honeymoon period and then it there was that thing that happened that did not feel good at all, whatever it was. But now we're back in this, I call it the candy and flowers stage. Right. And yeah. that feels pretty good. I That felt like what the relationship started off on. And so maybe you get a little hope from that. And then the cycle just continues if you're not able to break that cycle. Yeah. And a lot of times the abuser is promising, right? The victim, like, I promise it will never happen again. I'll get better. I'll get help. Right. And so you have this victim that loves this person. Right. And is trying to either help them or just think, or really believes that they're going to change. And so that's, yeah, that's- it's so easy to continue in a relationship like that. And it just comes back around. Right. So there's always that makeup and reconciliation stage as well. And then it goes right back into the honeymoon stage until the honeymoon stage, you know, later on will disappear where there's no longer a honeymoon stage and now you have just the tension and the abuse occurring and that does happen and i think it's really important just to go back the honeymoon phase we don't know how long this person has been with that partner before this started to occur Mm -hmm. i think i think there's a huge misconception on these violent or unhealthy or abusive relationships that once they begin it's just violence, right? And just really scary situations. And and that common question of why didn't you leave, which is such a damaging question. And we can spend so much time debunking, um, you know, why not to ask that. But at the end of the day, there's so much love built up in these relationships. And 
when you have that kind of that honeymoon phase, when you have maybe years built up of these situations occurring where everything is great. And maybe you think that suddenly, you know, something must have happened. This is just it must have been one time because I know this person. I'm kind of pointing to this imaginary honeymoon phase. <laughs> I know this person I fell in love with. I know who they are. And so and especially right with those promises, like you said, JC, we can kind of go right back in and, and we can maybe rationalize that behavior because there is the love, there's the trust, and there's the rapport built up in that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of manipulation too that's occurring between all of these layers and a lot of things that are happening to victims and survivors. And it's, it's not just as easy as the cycle, right? The cycle, I think, gives us a good picture of, you know, really kind of the, the course these take and, and how, you know, someone can get into that kind of risky situation into um, a situation where abuse occurs. But I think looking at the manipulation behind it is, is equally as important as well. Yeah. So since we said we were going to talk about the definition of domestic violence, what goes into that, we're going to go ahead and get into that and introduce the model that was actually developed in 1984. I'm going to give you a little bit of history on it because like Lisa said, she likes to question everything. If there's any of <laughs> If I come across any research or anything, I, I'm a check my sources kind of gal. <laughs> so in talking about this, I wanted to make sure I gave a little bit of background information. So it was developed in 1984 and it was in Duluth, Minnesota. So commonly uh, referred to as the Duluth model. So it was a group of people who were coming up with curricula for both men who batter and for women domestic violence uh, survivors. So really important there, this was created as a man as the abuser, woman as the victim or survivor in that heterosexual model. So as we talk about this, we will bring up other instances where the LGBTQIA plus uh, can come into play. And there are separate wheels that exist for that. But specifically for this model, it was created as that heterosexual model. So they convened groups of women who had experienced abuse and asked them what they had been experiencing. And that's where we get these eight different types of abuse that exist in the power and control wheel. And there's also the equality wheel that we will talk about. Uh, we'll explain that a little bit later, just to let you know there, there's a, a healthy side to this, of course. But that's how it came about was they worked to figure out, okay, if we are going to address these men who are causing harm and also help these women who are experiencing harm, what is this harm? So we are going to get into that and explain. I'm going to bring it up on my screen so we can all follow along together. We're so technology efficient here. Yes. <laughs> While she brings that up too, I think it's a great opportunity just to literally give the definition of domestic violence, because I think now that we have covered the cycle and now that we're about to look at these forms of manipulation and how you know this abuse is really carried out and these forms of manipulation are carried mm -hmm. out, I think this definition is going to have a lot more weight to it. And so when we are thinking about domestic violence, we define this as a pattern of behavior, which again, now think about that wheel. This is a pattern of behavior in which a partner is using threats, intimidation, or actual physical, emotional, sexual, uh, spiritual, financial violence, some form of abuse um, to maintain power and control. That's what this is all about. That is what the motivation is behind wanting to abuse or mistreat or um, in any way disrespect or mistreat that partner. It's about power and control. And there's a lot of reasons that go into that. We can spend uh, other full episodes talking about that dynamic and, and how people or why people wanna take that power and control for themselves. But I think going forward in these types of manipulation as well, keep that in mind. These, these are things that are done with intention. And again, that intention is to almost have that kind of godlike feeling, right? You're controlling someone else's life. And so I don't know, Brianna, if you wanna jump in and maybe introduce um, some of these first concepts. Yes, so I scrolled out so you could see the whole wheel where it says power and control in the middle. Thank you, Lisa, for going into that. But I zoomed in here so that we can really make sure we're uh, learning the wheel and seeing it up close. 
so we're going to start, I always like to go clockwise. So we're going to start with using intimidation. So that is making her afraid by using looks, actions, or gestures, smashing things, destroying her property, abusing pets, and displaying weapons. So this could look like uh, doing something to the pet that is her absolute favorite pet. And you know that if you do something to that pet, it's going to set her off. And so that's part of that manipulation. Uh, smashing things. So I said in the previous episode that I was going to be comfortable sharing some of my own experiences as uh, actually a teen dating violence survivor. So one of my experiences with this was my partner punched multiple holes in the wall and I was told to sit in the corner and look at them and think about what I had done and that he was going to go to the store and come back and I better still be sitting there in that corner looking at those holes in the walls, thinking about what I had done. So using that intimidation of, you know, you better do this or else, and that was also destroying property in the apartment as well. And that's huge. I just have to say, I mean, you guys can see, and I'm sure the listeners, if you're watching the video version of this, I mean, just the, the cringe level, right, of, of kind of just hearing that experience from you and also thinking about, you know, someone putting that kind of fear, abusing a pet around you. I mean, immediately my my heart shifts when I, and, and that's something we've all heard a lot, right? But mm -hmm. it, it's really um, important to think about how powerful that is because mm -hmm. if this is someone you care about, that intimidation is so much more impactful mm -hmm. yes. because yes. this is normally someone that's loving and caring, right? Um, and so to kind of take over this, um, Next part of the wheel here, um, over on the, the right-hand corner, we have using emotional abuse. And a lot of that, you know, kind of speaks to what Bree just said, right? That intimidation, that's going to, in a way, kind of be emotional abuse. Dealing with the psychology behind, you know, worrying about someone harming your pet or worrying about how that person can harm you if, if you've seen the damage they've done to that wall. So emotional abuse is really... Um, it's a really all-encompassing thing because it does include some of these other forms of abuse and the emotional impact that you have. But some other direct examples, it really goes into humiliating this person, um, really intentionally getting them to a mental state where they are not okay. So maybe you know exactly what to say to them, exactly what to call that person to just oh, ruin them or really, really make a deep impact on them. Maybe you know a situation that you could speak to. Don't you remember when this happened? And you know that's a devastating conversation for them to have. Or humiliating them, making them think that they're crazy. Gaslighting is a really big part of this. And just to give such a quick example or talk about gaslighting in a very concise way, um, the term was actually coined from a movie. That's why it's such a, an odd title. Um, and it was a movie in which the husband was making his wife intentionally feel crazy. And this was his way of powering over her. And the very common example from the movie, this is an older movie. They had gas lights within their house. He would go and flicker the lights. Um, and when it would happen and the wife would say, do you see the lights flickering? He would respond like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. So she began to question everything, right? So for making them question who they are, for humiliating them, putting them down, and again, intentionally getting them to that really negative space, that's really how we define emotional abuse. And so, JC, do you want to cover the next part of the wheel? Absolutely, yeah. So minimizing, denying, and blaming, right? So making light of the abuse and not taking her concerns about it seriously. So when we talk about that, it's, you know, a good example of that is when a victim makes, you know, their partner, their abuser, known of the actions that they took, right? Like, Last night you did this. Um, you were yelling at me, you pushed me, and then you have the perpetrator abuser either not wanting to listen to it or projecting like, well, let's talk about you or what you did, or you think you're so perfect, right? Not really wanting to address it. And then you have, you know, when, then you have an example of when, you know, the abuser saying that didn't happen, like you're crazy. So gaslighting, just like Lisa mentioned, you know, it's you. I don't know what you're talking about. It's all in your head. You're the cause of this, you know, not really taking any responsibility, really putting the blame on the victim, on the person that they're abusing. So making them feel like they did something wrong, and which is something that happens very often in domestic violence and an abusive relationship, right? Which is why we have a lot of victims and survivors feel like what happened is their fault, which 
makes them feel like, you know, they need to hang on in the relationship or why they don't leave. Um, so I think with that being said, it's really important that all these for us to know that all these tactics that are used by the abuser is just for them to gain more power and control over their partner, over the victim. So that's something that's really important for us to have in mind. And then you also see abusers and perpetrators use children against their partner. So if they have any children together, or maybe, you know, the victim just has children on their own, um, they'll really use the child against them um, to manipulate them and coerce them. So for example, you know, are you really going to leave me um, and our children? Or, you know, you don't love our family. You only love yourself. You're so selfish. You're wanting to leave even though we have children. Or if, you know, you have a victim that is financially dependent on that person, right, and has possibly no job, um, a lot of times, you know, the abuser will let them know, oh, well, good luck getting custody of our children in court, right? Um, or good luck finding a place on your own? How are you going to do that? Um, and so there's, this is a great tactic that a lot of abusers use, again, to just gain more power and control over their victims, knowing that it's really difficult for a victim to leave a relationship if they have children together. So there's so many barriers that victims, you know, face when there is children in place. Absolutely. And so um, going back up to the top, I know that another big part of this, and this is something Brianna kind of opened with when she spoke about intimidation. I think this is something that really aligns with that. But maybe, Free, if you could kind of discuss a little bit more the component of coercion and threats. Yeah, so with the coercion and threats, uh, that's making or carrying out threats to do something to her, threatening to leave her, uh, or to make to commit suicide. Uh, we actually do have a lot of crossover work with suicide prevention organizations because this is something that comes up in abusive relationships is if you don't do this or if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. That is something that is very common and something that can be very effective, unfortunately, on the perpetrator's side because the victim doesn't want to feel that guilt of if that was to happen, maybe it would feel like it was on my shoulders. You know, that's a huge thing to carry and to think that you might be, quote unquote, we know they wouldn't be responsible for, but quote unquote, feel like you're responsible for. Uh, what just a debilitating feeling, right? Of, I, I mean, for me, as someone that's not trying to harm their partner, of yes. course, that's going to be a barrier. Because if I'm not trying to abuse them, if I'm not trying to harm them, the thought of that is probably going to be so overwhelming for me that how do I even think I have an option? If it's either I stay or this happens, you know, of course, it, that's going to be a really huge barrier. And just another quick mention, I think that's even more common with our high schoolers. I think that threat um, of harming self-harm or harming someone else is really big in younger relationships as well. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to point that out. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So other things in coercion and threats is making her drop charges. So we could see that in our legal proceedings, you know, threatening, if you don't do this, then that common, if blank, then blank is a threat. and that can absolutely be something that plays into the manipulation and abusive relationships or making her do illegal things. You know, that was something that I also experienced in my relationship was things that I wouldn't have been choosing to do on my own. I was finding myself being wrapped up in because I wanted to make that relationship work for whatever reason I had at the time. Um, you know, I, I, experienced so many of those barriers to why doesn't she just leave and so it felt like the better thing to do to just go along with it rather than going through everything i would have had to go through uh, to end the relationship which i eventually did but you get wrapped up in those things sometimes if you're wanting to stay in that relationship just for physical or mental safety and maybe not even wanting only to stay but i think it's sometimes just a part of how i survive because maybe yes. if i do these things well now i avoid that awful conversation or that argument or that abuse right and so it really becomes yeah it really the power that's really exhibited here through these forms of manipulation again it's so much bigger and i think when you think about it as an outsider when you're not in or have not been in one of these relationships you know i think a lot of people with their 
self-identity, their character, their way of thinking about things, not being in the situation is, you know, that wouldn't happen or I wouldn't do that or, you know, this wouldn't happen to me. But I mean, there's really no way to, to say that without being through, again, this experience and this kind of layered effect of these things happening because it's, it's not just being um, dropped into the pot of hot water, right? It's a really kind of slow boil. And when you're mm-hmm. kind of trying to acclimate at every level and avoid the fights or avoid, you know, the awful situation or the blow up, you know, there's just so much that you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to self-guard who you are. You're just trying to function in a lot of ways, right? So I think it's a big way also to kind of think about this as we're going along. Um, And so we know the last part, this little top section of the wheel here is actually using economic abuse against a partner. And just like how we were saying how things can be yeah, really powerful, really debilitating, talking about JC mentioned, you know, using children and that kind of leverage, you know, where do I think I'm going to go if yeah, I don't have money and I have kids and I have no way of supporting them or, um, you know, gaining access to a legal team to get custody of my kids. So using economic abuse just from the get go is a really great way to kind of maintain that power and control. Because if you are preventing your partner from getting a job, so they don't have that income. So now maybe it's been X amount of years they haven't worked. So who's going to hire you anyway? You don't have any experience. You're going to feel really stuck, really isolated. Uh, Maybe you're giving that person an allowance or having them ask for money, this could be really dangerous, especially in these kinds of situations, you know, the kind of things maybe your partner is going to ask of you in order to have money for groceries or bills and things like that. Um, And of course, not having the access. So maybe they are working, but maybe someone's controlling those finances and giving some sort of an allowance. That way, this person doesn't feel like, hey, if I wanted to just kind of pack up and leave, I have no way of doing that. I can't buy a ticket without them checking the bank records. I can't, you know, buy myself the resources or what I would need, the apartment, because they're going to find out and that's going to be huge consequences for me. So economic abuse is another really, really big barrier in this as well. Um, And maybe I think we have one or two more on the bottom part of the wheel. Yeah, let's scroll down and we can finish this off here. So on this right hand side, we have using isolation. So that's controlling what she does, who she sees and talks to, what she reads, where she goes, limiting her outside involvement and using jealousy to justify actions. So one of the quotes that I think of in this is Leslie Morgan Steiner did a fantastic TED talk on why victims don't just leave. And when she talks about her experiences and the cycle that she experienced, she talked about how they ended up moving outside of the city and into more of a a country rural area. And she said, although that is so common, obviously it's here on our wheel using isolation, getting away from people and close neighbors. She said, it wasn't like he sat there, her abuser, and was like, okay, so I've done this, this, and this, and now I need to move on to isolation. And so I'm gonna move us out to the countryside, right? It doesn't happen that consciously. I mean, maybe, but (laughs) normally it doesn't happen that consciously. It's something that gradually develops over the cycle of this relationship. And so, like I said, less neighbors close by means there's not as many people to talk to, not as many people to maybe catch something by hearing it or seeing it, you know, so it can help the perpetrator get away with what they're doing because there's less people around to see that something's off or to call them out for something and for the victim to go to because isolation can be not only geographically, but also away from friends and family members. And so they don't even have those close connections to feel like they have someone to go to if they wanted to talk about it. Those have been wiped out because the abuser has just burned all of those bridges in those relationships. So isolation, you know, we hear that word a lot right now in this COVID time that we're going through, but it's absolutely a tactic of manipulation. Absolutely. And that's something that we often see with our clients, right? With a lot of the survivors that we work with, when we're talking to them about like safety planning and reaching out to support system, and we're asking them who is their support system, 
many times they straightforward tell you, I don't have a support system anymore. You know, they took me away from my friends, my family. They controlled even what job I had, where I went, you know, um, after work. And so this is a tactic that is used very often and is very visible to others. So, you know, just as a community member or someone that cares for someone that may be experiencing something like this, it's really important to always be there for them and be that support system, even though at times it, it may seem like they're pushing you away right but see that as a red flag see that as a warning sign that something else is going on right because this really is i think one of the most successful tactics that it, you know an unhealthy or abusive perpetrator can take on um, we say this phrase all the time violence thrives in silence if there's no one there to recognize that maybe you're acting different you're not yourself you're questioning who you are maybe no one is there to recognize or hear how this person's talking to you or how they interact with you yeah of course that person's gonna have a huge upper hand and that behavior and that controlling behavior being able to continue and kind of to put a couple pieces together here thinking about you know now you're away from your friends and family like Brianna said now you're away from resources Maybe I don't know where the DV or domestic violence shelter is here. I don't know if there is an agency out there. But regardless, let's take a look back. Maybe I don't have money either, right? So now maybe I don't have access to transportation. I don't have finances. I maybe don't even have my own computer access to internet where we are. So I don't have the availability to even reach out digitally for access and resources, right? So now that isolation is, yeah, going to become one of the most crucial components into keeping that power and control. And so the last part of this wheel that we have is, and of course, again, throughout this entire conversation, we are using the gender binary, we're using the example of a heterosexual relationship. And so this is going to speak directly to that. This last part of this wheel is using male privilege. And so again, um, outside of this, really anything else we can attach, I mean, same sex relationships, whatever combination, right? There could be economic abuse and LGBTQIA relationships, so on and so forth. So using male privilege, it's a little more specific. And what this looks like is in these um, male and female relationships where there is abuse going on, the male essentially kind of using gender rules as an excuse and as a pretty much a motivation for why these abusive behaviors are occurring. So maybe you're making her act like a servant because, hey, it's gender roles. The woman is supposed to clean and cook and, you know, get in the kitchen and make this for me or get out there and finish your work. Uh, maybe they're the ones that are saying, I make all the decisions. You aren't allowed to make the decisions, maybe with the finances, right? I'm supposed to be in charge of the money. That's a man's job. You don't worry about that. Uh, or being the one to define what you have to do for me as partners. And maybe those are really unhealthy, abusive, or unrealistic expectations. And so again, think about these parts of the wheel. Some relationships have one of one or two of these things going on. Some relationships might have all of this kind of working in tandem. So that way there is this really kind of inescapable feeling. Um, and really, I think it comes down to these individuals feeling like I'm just trying to navigate and survive and do what I have to to kind of maintain being as okay as I can during this relationship. And so in the beginning, we discussed how, you know, these are the methods for um, maintaining control, manipulation. And Brianna mentioned, there's a lot more wheels out there. I know, I think we have a wheel for everything, everything. right? <laughs> yeah. And so it's just as important for us to understand the kinds of manipulation that go on and how these unhealthy relationships look. It's way more important that we give you advice and tools and resources for how a relationship should look right it's not enough for us to say like look out for all this you know we have to supplement that we have to give you um what's really kind of defined as being in a healthy relationship and so i believe we're going to pull that wheel up here for you and we're going to take a little bit of time to discuss these different components of this wheel Absolutely. And I think like Lisa mentioned, you know, this wheel is just as important as a power and control wheel. A lot of times, if you ever grow up in a household where you saw a relationship that is not healthy, right? Maybe you saw your, you witnessed domestic violence. You may believe that that's what a relationship looks like. That may be your norm. So it's really important for you to know what a healthy relationship looks like, what equality looks like. So with that being said, um, the first part of this is a non-threatening behavior. So taking and acting so that she feels safe and comfortable expressing herself and doing things. And, you know, it's really important to know, again, um, that 
in a relationship, there always has to be some type of equality and fairness, right? You should feel safe. You should feel comfortable. You should be able to have a conversation. You should be able to have healthy disagreements. You should be able to feel like you can communicate um, freely and in a way that's very passive, right? Um, where you agree to disagree, but it's in a way where you're, there's no confrontation happening. There's no yelling happening. And so I think the very first part, it kind of captures that where the behavior that's happening in a, re in a healthy relationship is non-threatening. You're feeling comfortable. You're feeling respected. You're feeling loved. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of going into that, I think, so the next part of the wheel here is respect, right? And of course, we want to be able to have a relationship. Like she was saying, we don't want to feel like we can't bring something up. I don't want to feel like I'm going to cause an argument or it's going to get scary or crazy if I, you know, have something to share, something outside my boundaries. So the second component is respect. And of course, this is going to be what we all want. I have never spoken to anyone about what do you want in a relationship? I've never heard anyone say, I want to be really disrespected. No, I'm never going to hear that, right? No one's ever going to want to be disrespected. But a really important thing to think about when we're talking about respect is that the definition of respect is so vague. If you look up the definition, it just, it says to admire someone and to show them that. And thinking about that, how many different ways can I admire someone or show them that? And then I start to think, well, how many differences, right, or variations of respect are there? Because if how I feel respect, you know, how I gain that feeling, it might be completely different than how Brianna feels respected. Some things that make me feel respected by friends or family or partners may make her feel disrespected and same or vice versa with JC, right? And so when we think about respect, it comes down to how we could admire and show our partner that we admire them. But of course, that goes into understanding boundaries, having conversations, communicating other parts of this as well. But just keeping that in mind, right? We want to make sure that we are creating a space where we are just at least trying, right? Maybe we're trying to figure out what's respectable to our partner. If we're accomplishing that, we're at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, so moving on, and my note on the equality wheel, the existence of the equality wheel is I help to teach our parenting classes that live violence free in our Alpine office. And one of the biggest things about parenting is don't tell them what not to do, tell them what to do. And so that's where this wheel comes in is telling you what to do in relationships. We just told you not to not do. Um, that's like my favorite example is don't think of a red balloon. What are you thinking about right now? A red balloon. A red balloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I tell you to think of a blue balloon, you're probably not thinking of a red balloon. So that's that's my favorite note on why we talk about healthy relationships, uh, even though we are a domestic violence agency. So moving on to trust and support. So that is supporting her goals in life, respecting her right to her own feelings, friends, activities, and opinions. I think this is another one that really plays into young relationships because sometimes those youth can get so wrapped up in, oh my gosh, I need to do everything with this person. If I don't do this, this, and this with them, they're going to think I don't like them. And so definitely recognizing that you can have your own feelings, your own friends, your own activities is so healthy to have in a relationship. You know, if you're doing everything together all the time, uh, you need to have your separate interests and your things that are separate. You don't need to do everything together all the time. Uh, definitely have that separation. Yeah, I think especially for teenagers, right? I know, again, this yes. is more catered towards domestic violence, so older relationships. I mean, but even in older relationships, we have to oh, yeah. make sure we have that equal balance. And it's easy. It's easy when we are really falling for someone. There's that mm -hmm. attraction. We are in that honeymoon phase. It's easy to get in a space where, yeah, I want to figure out who this person is. I want to spend that time. But I think it's just ensuring we're not losing ourselves in that process. Okay. Yes. Or we're not taking too much or we're not having friends you know, complaining and saying, hey, you've been kind of neglecting us lately, right? If, if, if that's the case, then time to dial it back, right? Time to kind of just reassess that time that's being spent. And so I think that kind of plugs into also this other component of the wheel up at the top, which is negotiation and fairness. So being able to have um, satisfying resolutions to things, not we screamed at each other for an hour and 
fine, you know, you win and the fight is over. No, there's discussion. So even if we're having some kind of an argument, some kind of conflict or disagreement, we're able to negotiate and be respectful with one another and bring something that is fair. And even if that is just that agree to disagree that we brought up, right? Where we just, we won't talk about politics. We won't talk about religion, right? We'll kind of leave it at that. I respect you. We don't agree. And that is fine. So really kind of being willing to not completely change who you are. I don't think that's what we're looking for, but I think it's being willing to change things in you that benefit that relationship that also benefit you, right? That willingness, that ability to compromise when you can, when things are not outside of those boundaries and having that kind of negotiation, it's going to have the, it's going to promote respect, right? It's going to promote a place where we have non-threatening behavior, where we have respectful conversations as well. And since we're up there on the equality wheel, let's go ahead and cover economic partnership. So making money decisions together, right? So it's not having one person decide for both, no discussion happening. Um, you know, this, this economic partnership means really being able to have that conversation around finances. You know, what does that look like? What do we want to do? And really having that mutual agreement, right? Um, and then also, you know, making sure both partners benefit from the financial arrangement, that it's not one-sided, that one person is the only person that's, you know, benefiting from it, making sure that they're both happy, that there's a mutual agreement, like I mentioned, which I think is really important, right? Um, there's times where I even hear like teenagers talk about how they feel like they're being taken advantage financially because they're paying for everything and they're not able to and they feel uncomfortable doing it and not feeling comfortable to talk to their partner about it right um, and so again that's kind of one of the warning signs so making sure that you feel comfortable and it's safe enough to have that conversation and you know it's really important to have that mutual agreement when it comes to finances yeah, Absolutely. I love you saying there has to be that comfortability. And I think that's such a good thing to just keep in mind overall with the finances, with conversations, with talking about your boundaries and who you are. Think about it like you should have some sort of that comfort, right? Even if this is kind of scary, this person doesn't know me, I'm being vulnerable. At least trusting that, you know, there's part of this that you're, you're comfortable doing that with this person. You're not afraid of repercussions or um, consequences that are going to come out of you having these conversations is really important. Absolutely. And, you know, mistakes happen in a relationship because we're all human, right? We all make small mistakes. And so there's times where we do do something that may be hurtful to someone else, not intentionally. And that's when, you know, the honesty and accountability really comes into play, right? So really accepting that responsibility when you know you made a mistake, really taking that um, accountability and making the other person, you know, know that you're sorry, that you take accountability, you take responsibility, and you're going to work on that. Um, acknowledging past uh, use of violence. So, you know, if you were ever violent prior or you felt like you were in an abusive relationship, even just having those honest conversations, really, and making them aware, you know, I have these boundaries in place for this reason because I experienced this in my past relationship. Um, communicating openly and being truthful, I think is so beautiful. I really think that a relationship speaks for itself when there's vulnerability and transparency. And that really is a sign of a healthy relationship, right? Again, just being comfortable and feeling free to have that conversation, being feeling free to be able to address an issue or just address anything with your partner. I love that. I love that way of thinking mm -hmm. about it, you know, and that is so important is that vulnerability. I don't, you're right. I don't think a really genuine, really healthy, really pure, true relationship can really flourish. I, I can't say it won't exist, but I can't, I don't think it's going to flourish without that vulnerability in place. So to jump back in, I don't know if this is the last component of the wheel. I'll know I'll take my, I think we have two left. Beautiful. I was going to say, I think we're shy of two, but moving on with this in this bottom portion of the wheel, we have responsible parenting. And so obviously, yeah, this is going to be if there's children present in that relationship, but making sure that we are sharing those parental responsibilities. And this can kind of speak back to um, when we're looking at the first part of the wheel using male privilege, right? So maybe this was something that the partner was kind of passing off to their partner saying, well, this is your job, right? You're the mother, you are the wife. So of course you take care of the child. I shouldn't have to spend any time, right? Making sure there's, of course, you know, fairness and, and equity in sharing um, the parenting decisions and the parenting responsibilities. And of course, being a positive nonviolent role model, right? That's a huge part of this. We know that children who are young that witness domestic violence, there is 
really serious emotional, um, psychological consequences that can come out of that. And so really it comes down to not only making sure we're being, again, equitable in how we share those responsibilities, but also the kind of role model we are for our children. Because if they're hearing screaming matches occur, even from the other room, if they're seeing us get intense or physical with one another, that's going to have a huge impact on who they are. Yeah, I feel like we've talked a lot about shared responsibility already uh, in the other ones. And that's the part of these wheels that that's why it's a wheel, because mm -hmm. so many of these can play into other ones. You know, they do not exist in their little individual silos at all. These absolutely overlap. Mm -hmm. So with our last one of shared responsibility, it's mutually agreeing on a fair distribution of work and making the family decisions together. So it's not something that one person says, okay, this is how we're doing it. You're just going to go with it. You don't have any, any opinion on this. It's something that is a mutual conversation where both people get to speak their side and both people are equally respected, seeing another overlap. <laughs> and then the decision is reached based on what both parties agree to and are good with carrying out. So thank you guys so much for going through these wheels uh we had a just a wonderful time going through all of these mm -hmm. and sharing all of this with you guys in domestic violence awareness month just talking about how we really define domestic violence and what a healthy relationship can look like yeah i think there's a lot of misconceptions right and i think that's part of the work we're trying to do here is really debunk some of the misconceptions. Um, and I think commonly, you know, people seem to really lean towards and lean into that physical violence is of course abusive, but a lot of these other concepts and forms of abuse sometimes are really confusing for people or maybe they're not acknowledged or recognized. And so having that deeper understanding is really gonna be the only way that as communities, we can combat these issues. How do we how do we fight or challenge something that we don't understand? And so taking that step back allows people to have that bigger picture of what's really going on, right? Um, it gives you a different way to frame these situations. I think there's a lot of judgment sometimes for domestic violence victims and survivors, which we'll get more into that as well. And so I think just taking this step to understand the manipulation and how this works and how this really tends to feel for people um, and, and what that's played out like. It has you know a huge impact on our understanding and how we view these issues. And another thing I will mention with the healthy wheel, all of those things are easy to do when things are easy. It is easy to respect each other, to you know, responsibly parent together, to um, you know, have that negotiation and fairness. When things are not great, when there is conflict of some kind, that's when it's challenging. And that's when it's even more important to uphold those things. So if we are red in the face, not agreeing about something, right? Even if that's done in a healthy way of not agreeing, we have to make sure there's that respect. We have to make sure there's that negotiation and fairness, even if I can't right now even think of a way I can negotiate with you on this, at least opening the floor for a future conversation. And so don't get down on yourself if you think my relationship, well, sometimes it is hard for us to decide or sometimes, you know, we do kind of get short with each other because, you know, we have a couple of kids and it's just frantic and we're tired. You know, if you're in a situation where, again, your motivation is not to make your partner um, feel out of control or feel bad about themselves, if you're genuinely trying and doing your best, right, and trying to maintain that respect, you're doing what all of us are doing. You're being human and you're navigating relationships the way we all have to navigate them. And so just keep that in mind, right? It's it's just important to make sure we're maintaining that in the hard times as best we can and maintaining our motivation to purely uplift our partner, right? And be um, a good, genuine partner in that relationship. And, and so- no, I just wanted to highlight that, you know, if you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic violence, just know you're not alone. There is help. You can always contact our crisis line at 530-544-4444. Or if you need immediate assistance, you can contact 911. And domestic violence, it can happen to it can happen to anyone. It can happen anywhere at any time. It knows no race, gender, age, class, sexual identity. So this does happen to many people and you're not alone. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, so 
given all of that, um, I, I don't know if you had joined us in our first episode, we wanted to end these sessions, especially a session like today, kind of diving into a little more heavy of a topic of defining relationship, manipulation, and abuse. We always want to make sure we're signing off and doing a little bit of self-care with you guys. And so uh, today we have the wonderful Miss Brianna, who's going to lead our guided meditation for us. Yes, so I'm going to be reading the screen. I did not memorize this. Um, so I will be guiding you guys through this meditation. So this is actually one that uses counting. So counting will allow you to focus your mind, which will lead to deep relaxation. During this meditation, it is normal for your mind to wander during any meditation. <laughs> That's totally normal. When you notice your attention drifting, simply focus again on your breathing. Try to passively accept thoughts that enter your mind and allow them to pass without paying particular attention to them. So to begin this meditation, find a comfortable position. Again, if you're listening to this while driving, um, if you feel like you need to do it right now, pull over but otherwise you can pause right here and then go ahead and press play when you're ready to be in that calm and comfortable position. If you're comfortable, close your eyes. Uh, if that's more distracting to you, then just do whatever feels best, whatever's most comfortable for you. So take a moment to notice how your body feels. Observe without trying to change anything. Notice any areas of tension, and notice which parts of your body feel relaxed. Sit quietly and turn your attention to your breathing. Breathe slowly, deeply in and out. In and out. As you continue to breathe, Count each breath out. So in one, in two, in three, in. Four, in, five. You can keep counting on your own. Focus all of your attention on your breathing and on the numbers. If your attention drifts, focus again on your breathing. If you lose count, just start again at one. No judgment, just the thoughts pass. And if your attention is trying to wander again, just return to breathing. Now after your next breath, you can stop counting and simply relax for a few moments. Just be. When you're comfortable, come back into the space. You can open your eyes, maybe wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers, come back into the space. Enjoy this feeling of relaxation. Notice how you're feeling physically and mentally and how it feels to be relaxed. That was lovely. Absolutely. Thank you for leading that. Yeah. Thanks for joining. <laughs> I want to thank you both so much. And uh, I want to thank our listeners out there. I hope today, I hope today was a really empowering conversation for a lot of people to listen into. I really 
again, we want this to be a space where we can take these conversations and really empower others with them. And so we really hope we've done that here today. And of course, we're going to be going into a lot more conversations throughout the month and upcoming episode. We'll be even giving insight of how you can lead conversations with others, but more specifically, how we can talk to victims and survivors of domestic violence. So really just empowering our community to kind of get out there and um, shine light on these issues and do this work as well. And so we really thank you. Uh, we look forward to next episode and we hope that you will all listen in once again.